Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Surrenders now starting at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia, where Trump and 18 co-defendants are being charged. Who's shown up so far and what they have to say about it? Looking ahead in Arizona, Trump supporters are predicting it could be the next state to indict former President Trump and his allies. What would that look like? The first Republican primary debate is happening tomorrow. We bring you what topics candidates might discuss and a possible reason why former President Trump won't attend. Southern California is cleaning up the mass tropical storm Hillary left behind. A meteorologist shares more on the storm's impact. And COVID mandates that seem to linger. What's back? Where and what are the implications? We speak with Dr. Scott Atlas for his analysis. Former President Trump's co-defendants have started to surrender to jail in the Georgia indictment. NTD's Melina Weiskup is tracking updates for us at the jail. Melina, tell us more about those first to surrender. Hi there, good to see you. So two of Trump's co-defendants have already surrendered here to this Fulton County Jail behind me, one of those being John Eastman, who is Trump's former attorney. Eastman is the one who pushed that legal theory that Vice President Mike Pence had authority to reject slates of electors on January 6th. After Eastman was bailed out on $100,000, he came to speak to reporters saying that he has not spoken with former President Trump after the indictment. He also said that he does not regret challenging the election results here in Georgia. Here's what Eastman told us along with my question to their defense attorney about what their legal strategy is moving forward. I am confident that when the law is faithfully applied in this proceeding, all of my co-defendants and I will be fully vindicated. Sir, which of the charges do you think will be the most difficult to challenge and can you share with us any plans of your defense? If you read our lawsuit, that was the predicate for what was going on in Georgia. So just before Eastman, Scott Hall was another co-defendant to surrender earlier this morning. Hall was charged with seven counts, six of those being conspiracy charges, such as conspiring to unlawfully obtain voter data. Now, aside from these two co-defendants who have already surrendered, we're also seeing more consent bail agreements pour in. We saw some today from figures like Jenna Ellis and Kathy Latham, as well as others. As for former President Trump, his bond is set at $200,000, which is the first time Trump will have to pay a cash bill in any of these indictments. There's also certain restrictions on Trump's consent bail, including what he can say about this case and who he can speak to, including social media posts. Defendants, uh, the district attorney says that this is meant to prevent witness intimidation. So how is this process playing out once they go in the jail? How long do they have to stay and what happens when they're there? Well, based on what we saw this morning with Scott Hall and John Eastman, it's a pretty quick process. They were in and out within a couple of hours. This is probably different than the normal ordinary defendants and other cases that you would see come through this jail. And that's mainly because they did already make consent bail agreements with the district attorney, speeding up that process a little bit, that paperwork. But as far as the process, when they're actually inside the jail, the sheriff says that they're still subject to the same processing, such as fingerprinting, mugshots, etc. Now, one defendant... 
I do want to point out because he's making uh, more efforts here on his case is Mark Meadows. Now, he wants to extend his deadline to surrender to sometime next week because he does have a hearing set with the federal judge on Monday. But just based on emails that we've seen between the district attorney and Meadows attorney, it's not looking like the district attorney is willing to extend Meadows deadline here. As for former President Trump, he says he'll be here on Thursday to surrender to this jail. Back to you. Thanks for that update, Melina. Next, Trump allies believe Arizona will be the next state to indict the former president. This comes after the Georgia indictment cites Arizona numerous times in connection with an alleged fake elector scheme. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. Could Arizona be the next state to charge former President Trump with attempting to overturn the 2020 election? Some of Trump's strongest supporters are predicting that it will likely happen. Days after the Fulton County District Attorney announced her indictment of Trump and 18 others, former Arizona GOP candidate Carrie Lake said in a social media post, I expect they'll order Katie Hobbs and Chris Mays to indict Donald Trump ASAP. The Georgia indictment cites Arizona numerous times in allegations that Trump and his allies created false electoral college documents and recruited individuals to convene and cast false electoral college votes at the Georgia state capitol. It states the defendants executed similar schemes in Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The individuals who allegedly cast the false votes have been called fake electors. Michigan's attorney general indicted 16 individuals, accusing them of engaging in a fake elector scheme. But she didn't name Trump. A Wisconsin judge is allowing a civil lawsuit against fake electors to go forward. And the state's Democratic Attorney General, Josh Call, has not ruled out a state probe. Arizona's Attorney General confirmed to local media that she's investigating fake electors. We are taking this investigation very seriously, very solemnly. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs said last week at an event in Arizona that her Attorney General should follow Georgia's suit. Absolutely. I um, have been um, an advocate for holding folks involved in uh, trying to overturn the will of the voters of the, in the 2020 election accountable, and this um, is part of that. KTAR News reports that Hobbs' communications director said in a statement, Governor Hobbs misheard the question. She was responding generally about her belief that anyone who breaks the law must be held accountable for working to overturn free and fair elections. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks Arizona is next. Well, I'm sure Arizona is next. And just as Stephen Miller laid out, this is a conspiracy, a grand conspiracy by the Democrat Party to use the justice system at the federal level, but also in the states. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And Republican presidential candidates are preparing for the first primary debate. They all have different strategies going in. Here's some topics the candidates might bring up. Eight candidates have reached the polling and donor thresholds needed to qualify for the first Republican primary debate. Those are former President Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. One issue that might come up a lot is abortion, according to journalist Elizabeth Nolan Brown. 
know, Mike Pence, who is who is a, a very true believer in the pro-life side, he really has has already hit hard at um, you know, someone like Trump, who is who is much more squishy about the issue. And I think that he is, you know, this is Pence sees this as his chance to shine. Another topic is Biden's age and Vice President Kamala Harris. Nikki Haley in particular has already sort of been talking about her and how, you know, if you're voting for Biden, you're actually voting for a President Harris. And that's not an entirely unfounded concern. I mean, you know, Biden is up there in age. Other topics might include former President Trump, support for Ukraine, support for Israel, culture war issues, and illegal immigration. According to a Republican strategist, the U.S. will undergo a stress test over the next 18 months that it has not undergone since the Civil War. I hope we can survive the stress, uh, but it's going to be put under an enormous amount of pressure over the next 18 months. Former President Trump, who is fighting legal battles, says he'll not attend the debate. One reason might be the event will get more viewers with him attending, because some will tune in just to see Trump. A presidential historian points out how the upcoming election is unprecedented a candidate running while at the same time dealing with multiple felony charges. Once in a while, historians ought to admit that there are uncharted waters, that there is in fact new history uh, being made. The first GOP debate will take place on Wednesday in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And speaking of the debate, GOP candidates Larry Elder and Perry Johnson plan to sue the Republican National Committee, or RNC. This over being excluded from the debate, despite their claims that they met the RNC's requirements. Elder wrote on X that the rules were rigged and he intends to sue the RNC to halt Wednesday's presidential debate. His post says, quote, the establishment leaders at the RNC are afraid of having my voice on the debate stage. In a statement, Johnson also claimed he met the necessary qualifications to be on the debate stage and announced that he will take legal action against the RNC. The RNC's requirements for the first debate included polling at least 1% in three national polls. Candidates must also have 40,000 unique donors with at least 200 unique donors per state in more than 20 states. And if the debate does go ahead on Wednesday, what should voters be wanting to know? And what should candidates be able to answer? We hear from Brownstone Institute's founder, Jeffrey Tucker, for his stance. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Presidential candidates will be trying to set themselves apart in tomorrow's primary debate, while Trump's absence looms large. What do you think voters should be seeking answers on? Uh, to my mind, the number one question concerns the COVID response. Almost all the national crisis we have today, the learning loss, the substance abuse, the inflation, the dislocation, demographic upheaval, confusion, loss of liberty, and the rule of law, traced to those fateful days of March 2020, when uh, the COVID lockdowns happened on the recommendation of the CCP and the World Health Organization. So the question is, you know, why did we follow those protocols, which we have no evidence that they improved disease outcomes at all, but it definitely wrecked the Constitution and wrecked American economy and, and American liberty and American culture. So we need to find out, you know, what are they going to do in the future? What do they think about what happened? And what are they going to do in the future? Right now, we see all sorts of push for new mask mandates and uh, FDA's rubber stamping every new uh, booster that's coming out. We need to get some clarity on where they stand on this.
And Trump himself will, of course, have a platform tomorrow night with Tucker Carlson. You've written in the Epic Times that there are several questions that he still needs to answer to voters. Could you lay yeah. that out for us? Yeah, uh, well, many questions, and there's no time to go into them all. But we do know that he was recommending against lockdowns on March 9th and saying that there was going to be maybe a severe flu, but it would come and go, and we shouldn't worry about it. By the 11th, he had changed completely and said that we were going to use a whole-of-government response. March 12th, he blocked flights from Australia, UK, and Europe, and on March 13th, put the National Security Council, of all things, in charge of the pandemic response. Then over the weekend, met with his advisors, including Burks and Fauci and Mike Pence. And then on March 16th, issued that fateful order that shut all bars, restaurants, indoor and outdoor venues where people gather, which was, you know, basically like getting rid of the Bill of Rights, you know. And, and I would like to know what it is it what is it that changed his mind? You know, what, what was he told, who told him? Why was the National Security Council involved at all, much less having primacy over public health agencies? And, you know, we need to know the players and what was going through his head. And did it occur to him that this was not a good idea? What did he expect these lockdowns to achieve? And what is his view of them? And not just that he did a great job, like he says, on everything, but we need to know hardcore, uh, what does he really think? Was Does he believe he was tricked or uh, is he really going to stick by his story? And there's so many other questions I want to ask about Operation Warp Speed and uh, so many other uh, issues. Such great questions. Thank you so much, Jeffrey Tucker, okay. founder uh, and president of the Brownstone Institute and uh, senior columnist for the Epic Times. Very good. Thank you. South Texas is enduring heavy rains and power outages as Tropical Storm Harold makes landfall. This is the state's first tropical storm of the hurricane season. Harold made landfall about 10 a.m. this morning near South Padre Island on the Texas Gulf Coast. The city of Corpus Christi has received about three inches of rain, and some isolated areas in Texas and Mexico are seeing up to six inches of rain. The National Weather Service also recorded winds of up to 50 miles per hour in Corpus Christi. The storm knocked out power for at least 20,000 people, and two counties were under flash flood warnings. Harold is moving northwest across the mainland at about 20 miles per hour. It's expected to weaken into a tropical depression. Authorities are urging residents to check road conditions before traveling. And as tropical, tropical storm Hillary moves out of Southern California, it leaves behind a city in need of serious tidying up. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more from Los Angeles. Cleanup operations are in full swing across Southern California as communities work to recover the aftermath of Tropical Storm Hillary, which brought historic rainfall to the region. National Weather Service meteorologist Richard Thompson tells us the last time a tropical storm hit SoCal. This is historic. This is the first landfalling tropical storm in Southern California since September 25th, 1939. So it's been a few decades since this actually last occurred. Uh, so it's definitely a very rare occurrence. Thompson says as the storm continues to move northward, it continues to weaken to a point where it's a post-tropical depression. A Hillary formed, it became a, a strong or a category four hurricane. Then as it continued moving north, you know, uh, over the coastal waters there, it gradually weakened. By the time it came onshore at, uh, and at the Mexican border, it was a tropical storm. 
which means like wind speed or wind gusts between 39 and 74 miles per hour. The storm barreled through the city, flooding streets, triggering mudslides and leaving thousands without power. The rain unleashed record-breaking downpours overnight, which dumped more than half the average annual rain on some desert and mountain areas. The Los Angeles Fire Department responded to more than 1,800 storm-related calls for service. Yes, there was a lot of uh, just like it was flooded like crazy the to, up to the sidewalk and stuff like um, we had a sandbag part of our house uh, in front of our house and stuff like that. Uh, well, we did receive uh, you, you look at the rainfall totals across Southern California. Uh, coastal areas received upwards of four to five inches in the mountains and deserts. You had upwards of some areas in excess of 10 inches of rainfall. So with that much rainfall in such a short period of time, there are many uh, uh, reports of flooding. As Los Angeles starts to dry out following the heavy storm, there have been no reported deaths, serious injuries, or significant damages in the state so far. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And in health news, it seems some COVID mandates are resurfacing. There are new masking rules at the major Hollywood studio Lionsgate, as well as on-campus masking and other mandates at the Atlanta-based Morris Brown College, at least for the next two weeks. Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas about this and other developments. Dr. Atlas is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and formerly advised the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Atlas, thanks for joining us. When COVID mandates first came out, it seemed that they'd be temporary. So as they resurface and seem to stick around, what should people be keeping in mind? Well, people need to uh, realize a few things. Number one, this is an endemic, endemic phase. That means the virus is here like there are several other coronaviruses in circulation. It's never going to go away. This virus is not the same virus. This is not the lethal form of the virus. These are variants that come up as viruses sort of struggle to be contagious, they lose their lethality. So this is not the same uh, danger in terms of the virus itself. And then finally, people have protection. People have biological protection. More than 95% of people in most populations have long lasting memory immunologic protection that comes on when you're reinfected and prevents severe disease. And that protection is mainly uh, from having had COVID or from having had uh, vaccines. And so this is not the same situation and we can't panic. And I'm not even sure we should even be monitoring like we are obsessively doing infections of COVID. All right, and on the digital front, YouTube says it will censor content that contradicts the WHO's guidelines. What's the significance of this and what should be done to ensure the free flow of information? Well, this is antithetical to a free society. It's opposite to what we as a free society need to determine what's truth. You cannot have truth-seeking without the free flow of information. Very ironic, in fact, it's, it's really shameful that kind of behavior, because if they're going to censor misinformation, they must censor the WHO. They must have censored the WHO repeatedly over the past few years of this pandemic, because the WHO has been putting forth incorrect, misleading, and dangerous information. Like number one, that the infection fatality rate was 50 to 100 times higher than what it really was. Number two, that praised China 
for being transparent when they were blocking access to critical information. Number three, the WHO agreed with China there was no human-to-human -human transmission of SARS-2. And frankly, the WHO has praised China for, quote, being a model for the pandemic response, even though China was one of the most barbaric and really, uh, frankly, broke all uh, really humanitarian principles and with what they did to their population in their barbaric lockdowns uh, that really can never be repeated. This is really unacceptable behavior. If the WHO thinks that's okay, then we really have not uh, even scraped the surface of how illegitimate the WHO is. Dr. Scott Atlas, always great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Coming up, a key alliance that includes Russia and China is discussing adding more countries to the bloc. We bring you the highlights from the first day of this week's summit in South Africa. In Pakistan, churches lay in ruins after mob rage. Some families are now hesitating to return home. How is the Pakistani government responding? And also in Pakistan, eight passengers are rescued from a dangling cable car. Several students and teachers were commuting to school when a cable snapped mid-air. We'll have details on this and more when we return. Leaders of BRICS nations are meeting in South Africa. The main topic on the agenda? Expanding the bloc by letting more nations join. Here's what the heads of state have to say about that. Chinese leader Xi Jinping met with South Africa's president on Tuesday ahead of the joint BRICS meeting. President Cyril Ramaphosa presented Xi with the Order of South Africa before the two talked about expanding BRICS. South Africa and China have similar views with regard to the expansion of BRICS. China is now the strongest advocate of expanding the bloc. Right now it consists of the countries of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Although it's not clear which countries might join in the future, a possible contender would be Argentina, which is suffering from high inflation. Brazil's president, Lula da Silva, commented on that on Tuesday saying it is very important for Argentina to be in BRICS. We want BRICS to be a multilateral institution, not an exclusive club. Russian President Vladimir Putin won't be attending the event. He published a statement on the meeting on Tuesday, saying BRICS works for the global majority. He also addressed Ukrainian grain shipments, which Russia is blocking. Many African countries depend on Ukrainian grain. We have decided to send 25 to 50,000 tons of grain to six African countries, free of charge, including free delivery of these cargoes. Putin did not address expanding BRICS in his remarks. As of right now, BRICS already includes more than 40 percent of the world's population and a quarter of the global GDP. And another top-ranking U.S. official is set to visit communist China. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is scheduled to travel to Beijing and Shanghai next week. This as the White House hopes to reopen dialogue with the world's second largest economy. The Commerce Department said a wide range of discussions will be on the agenda. 
Topics include challenges faced by U.S. businesses in China, the U.S.-China commercial relationship, and other areas for potential cooperation. Just recently, Washington removed 27 Chinese companies from its export controls. But that's as China's economy is slumping, with an all-time high youth unemployment rate and a looming real estate crisis. Economists fear that the negative impact could eventually reach beyond China's borders. Raimondo will be the fourth Biden administration official to visit China this year, following Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and Climate Envoy John Kerry. And over in Pakistan, a Muslim crowd attacked a Christian community after an alleged desecration of the Quran. Now some Christians say they're afraid to return home. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. A Muslim mob in eastern Pakistan attacked a Christian community on Wednesday. It started after two men allegedly desecrated the Quran. The crowd destroyed several churches and set many Christian homes on fire. Residents said that even a Christian graveyard was desecrated. According to witnesses, the rampage lasted 10 hours without any intervention by police who stood nearby. Pakistani police denied this, saying they prevented an even worse situation. Later on, when there were no immediate arrests for the alleged desecration of the Quran, some residents began protesting. Our Punjab police are doing nothing. When a man smuggles cocaine, he is apprehended within hours. But the person who has committed blasphemy has not been arrested after 24 hours. The police should side with the Muslims. By the following morning, security personnel had blocked off all entry and exit points to the Christian community. When I saw my house, I felt a jolt in my heart and I thought I was going to fall. I immediately came out of my house and sat down. We haven't committed any crime. All this is a grave injustice to us. Police have arrested almost 160 suspects in connection with the attacks. Meanwhile, police also arrested two Pakistani Christian brothers for blasphemy. They are accused of desecrating the Quran, a crime that is punishable by death in Pakistan. Police said pages of the Quran were found on the street with derogatory comments written on them in red. And one of the attached pages had the names, addresses, and national identity card numbers of the suspects. A provincial police chief said they are investigating why the names and other identifying information would be attached to the evidence. A court ordered the two brothers to be held for seven days for questioning. Dealing with the aftermath, a Christian mother said this about returning home after the attacks. I don't want to go back to that place with my young daughters. I want a safe place for my family to live in. The fear that has been embedded in my heart and my children's minds is just not going away. But other Christians continued their prayer services on Sunday right outside of their vandalized church. And a resident said a Muslim delegation offered their mosque for Christians to use as places of prayer and worship. Also, a Pakistani official on Monday said every Christian family whose home was destroyed will be paid the equivalent of about $7,000. Jason Perry, NTD News. Stranded in a cable car, dangling hundreds of feet over a valley for 14 hours. 
Now all those eight people in Pakistan are finally safely back on ground. Six children and two teachers were traveling to school in northwest Pakistan when one of the gondola's cables snapped this morning. They were stuck some 900 feet above a valley as strong winds made rescue difficult. Two of the passengers were plucked from the cable car more than 10 hours later by helicopter, while two others were rescued by local zip liners. After night fell, the other three people were also rescued. Many children who live in remote parts of the region rely on cable cars to ferry them to school and back. And at least 18 burned bodies were found in a Greek village today where wildfires had been raging for days. Nearby, tens of hospital patients were evacuated onto a ferry to escape the flames, according to the fire brigade. Greek media said those found dead were thought to be migrants, as the broader Evros region is a popular route when crossing from Turkey into Greece. Nearby on the same day, dozens of hospital patients were evacuated onto a ferry in the Greek city of Alexandroupolis. Hundreds of firefighters have been trying to contain the blaze since Saturday. But fanned by gale-force winds, it quickly spread, covering the city in smoke and turning the night sky bright red. Authorities said 65 patients at the University Hospital of Alexandroupolis had been evacuated as a precaution onto a ferry in the port. Fourteen more people were evacuated by a Coast Guard vessel from a beach near the village of Makri. And as flames approached the Alexandroupolis Metropolitan Church Foundation, people were evacuated in wheelchairs and stretchers. Father Christodoulos Karathanasis, director of Holy Metropolis of Alexandroupolis, was part of the effort. We managed in just four and a half hours to transport 200 inpatients from both institutions, saving them from the threat of fire. Some were able to walk and others were bedridden. The ferry turned into a makeshift hospital. Elderly patients lay on mattresses strewn across the cafeteria floor. Paramedics attended to others on stretchers and a woman held a man resting on a sofa, an IV drip attached to his hand. Several communities in the broader Evros region, near the border with Turkey, have been evacuated, as authorities warned the risk of new fires remains high in the coming days. Coming up, another bus carrying illegal immigrants from Texas arrives in L.A. The mayor is now criticizing the Texas governor for sending the bus during the tropical storm. The Roman Catholic Archbishop files for bankruptcy in San Francisco. The Archdiocese cites hundreds of child sexual abuse lawsuits. And Goldman Sachs says a government shutdown later this year is more likely than not. This as Congress is still a ways off from a deal on final spending bills. All of that and more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia case begin to surrender themselves before the Friday deadline. Trump plans to turn himself in at the Fulton County Jail Thursday. Tropical Storm Harold makes landfall in the Texas Gulf Coast, bringing heavy rain, flash flood warnings and power outages. Harold is moving inland as it weakens into a tropical depression. 
Eight candidates are qualified for the first GOP presidential primary debate tomorrow night. They're expected to discuss culture war issues, illegal immigration, Biden and Trump, who will sit out the debate with a sizable lead in the polls. Day one of the annual BRICS summit kicks off in South Africa. The top agenda for China, Russia, Brazil, India and South Africa is letting other countries into the bloc. A ninth bus carrying illegal immigrants has arrived in Los Angeles from Texas. This time the mayor criticized the Texas governor for sending it during the tropical storm. Meanwhile, several governors banded together to call out President Biden over the border crisis. NTD's Eileen Ang has more. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass slammed the Texas governor for sending families with toddlers towards tropical storm Hillary. In a statement, she said, If anybody understands the danger of hurricanes and thunderstorms, it's the governor of Texas, who has to deal with this threat on an annual basis. This is a despicable act beyond politics. The bus departed from Brownsville, Texas on Sunday as city officials warned Angelinos to brace for the peak impact of the storm. It arrived at L.A. Union Station Monday evening. This comes as the city voted in June to be a sanctuary city for immigrants. Overwhelmed at the border, Texas has been sending migrant buses to more liberal cities like L.A. and New York. This is the ninth migrant bus that has arrived in L.A. On Monday, the Texas governor and four other governors held a press conference in Eagle Pass, Texas, responding to the open border policies. Every state in the United States is a border state. Sure, it's Oklahoma. It's all the way to South Dakota. You heard Kim Reynolds and Iowa talk about it. Look at what's going on in New York. Look at what's going on in Illinois. They may be Democrat governors and Democrat mayors, but they're fed up as much as Republicans are with the Biden administration and the way that Biden is destroying our states and our cities and our country. Americans will not tolerate it anymore. Abbott claims President Biden is responsible for thousands of migrant deaths. In response, 25 states are supporting Texas to secure the border. The influx of migrants came after Title 42 expired in May. In San Francisco, the Roman Catholic Archbishop is filing for bankruptcy, citing hundreds of child sex abuse lawsuits against the archdiocese. The suits came after California passed a law to extend the statute of limitations in child sex abuse cases. NTD's Jason Blair has more. The Archbishop of San Francisco announced on Monday a filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy to, quote, manage and resolve more than 500 lawsuits alleging child sexual abuse. The lawsuits come after California Assembly Bill 218 passed into law, which allows claims that previously would have expired under the statute of limitations. San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione said in a press release, quote, it is the best way to bring much-needed resolution to survivors while allowing the Archdiocese to continue its sacred mission to the faithful and those in need. The press release also says that the overwhelming majority of the alleged abuse cases occurred more than 30 years ago and involved priests who are deceased or no longer in the ministry. It also says a number of measures and resources have been put in place over the years such as victim counseling services, background checks, and an independent review board consisting of an abuse survivor, psychologist, two physicians, a retired police officer, and others. The Archdiocese serves San Francisco, Marin, and San Mateo counties with a Catholic population of 442,000. 
Also in California, both the Oakland and Santa Barbara Archdiocese filed for bankruptcy this year, also citing financial challenges from hundreds of sexual abuse lawsuits. In Rome, a child abuse prevention panel put together by the Vatican for the entire Catholic Church is estimated to have its first report in 2024. Reporting from San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. Goldman Sachs is warning its clients that Washington is on track for the first U.S. government shutdown in five years. I talked with NTD Business's Don Ma for more. Don, great to have you on our show. Thanks for coming on. Now, why is Goldman Sachs saying that we're heading for a shutdown? Yeah, so here's some context first before I answer that question. Why are we even facing a threat of shutdown? So under the Anti-Deficiency Act, federal agencies cannot spend any money without appropriation or approval from Congress. Therefore, when Congress fails to enact annual appropriation bills, federal agencies must cease all non-essential functions, and that's known as the government shutdown. So then why would Congress be unable to pass the appropriation bills, right? Well, Goldman Sachs is arguing that a thin House majority and a dispute on spending levels, among other disagreements, are making things complicated for Congress. So Goldman Sachs thinks, thinks that a shutdown is actually more likely than not later this year. So if we do go into a shutdown, what would that look like? During shutdowns, some federal employees, uh, not all of them, are told not to report for work. Uh, government employees who provide essential services like air traffic control and law enforcement will continue to work, but they don't get paid until Congress takes action to end the shutdown. But keep in mind that this applies to only about 25% of federal spending that's actually subject to annual appropriation by Congress. Um, a shutdown could also potentially delay the release of federal economic reports, including the ones on inflation and the labor market. So should we be worried about a potential shutdown? Well, it seems like Wall Street uh, may not be losing any sleep over this because a government shutdown would cause some problems for individuals, but it would not be very damaging to the U.S. economy at large. And Goldman Sachs basically says the same thing as well. And, and Steph, we have to understand that a shutdown is far less severe than a U.S. debt default. So benefits like Social Security and Medicare will continue to flow because they're, they're authorized by Congress in laws that do not need annual approval. And the Treasury can continue to pay interest on U.S. debt on time. But, you know, Steph, because the risk to the economy is lower, that actually potentially could um, remove some pressure for Congress to reach a decision in time. And that's what Goldman was saying, too, that because the government shutdown will be manageable for the economy, that's why it may be likely to happen. And if we do see a government shutdown, it certainly wouldn't be the first one. Yeah, of course. The last government shutdown took place in 2018 to 2019 and lasted 35 days. That, that's, that, that was the longest shutdown in U.S. history. And that shutdown didn't deal a fatal blow to the markets or the economy. All right, Don Ma, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steph. Coming up, digital transactions only. Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and others want to go digital on 100% of their sales. How could it impact you? 
And in baseball news, what was once a powerhouse team is now in last place as the Yankees have lost eight in a row. We'll look at some possible off-season changes when we return. Digital transactions only. KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut and others are planning on 100% digital sales. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Digital transactions only. Fast food chains like Taco Bell, KFC and Pizza Hut are hoping to have 100% of their sales be digitally driven in the future. We are advancing our digital strategy to one day achieve 100% of sales powered by digital. Yum Brand CFO Chris Turner says this means more people will order online, on their phones or at in-store kiosks. Yum is doing this largely because it thinks it'll make more money. When it made shifts toward digital in the past, order sizes grew, customers ordered more frequently, and there were more marketing opportunities. When it comes to wanting to go to a 100% digital world, I see those restaurants wanting to do that. I understand the speed, the convenience, the security that's there, but I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Payments expert Kevin Olson sees pros and cons to going full-on digital, both for restaurants and for the world. On the pro side, he says cash is expensive, dirty, and comes with security concerns. Digital is obviously more convenient. On the con side, Many low-income people can only use cash. They'll be left out. And many Americans don't like digital only. Olson believes we won't see a 100% digital future in his lifetime, largely for this reason. In the U.S., we've been fighting it. Businesses were saying, hey, we're going to go cashless. And the city governments and the local governments got involved and said, no, you can't do that. Until we get to the point to where, as a society, we are 100% on board for going 100% digital, I don't see it happening. Yum Brands hasn't specified a time frame for its all-digital goal. Turner believes the government is likely to step in if it gets too close. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And now for your sports news. We're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, Michigan suspended head coach Jim Harbaugh for three games yesterday. What was the reason for that? Yeah, it's really to lessen what should be a harsher sentence when the NCAA does eventually rule on this, which will probably be sometime next year. They'll just subtract these games from whatever sentence they gave him. Now, there's been some apparent behind-the-scenes negotiating where Michigan offered a four, reportedly offered a four-game suspension to the NCAA, which they rejected. So we know it's going to be longer than four anyway. Uh, but basically, this is for alleged recruiting violations that may have happened a couple years ago um, that this is going to possibly happen. Now, Michigan is currently ranked second in the country. Do you see this impacting their season? No, not really. They were very smart about this. He's going to miss the first three games. All are against unranked, non-conference opponents where they'll be heavy favorites. And if they do add some games on next year, it'll probably be to the same kinds of opponents. Uh, so it's almost like Michigan found a way for him to miss maybe the least difficult games on his schedule. So if it was done on purpose, it's looking like a pretty smart move. Now, moving on to baseball, the once mighty New York Yankees have lost eight games in a row. What's going on there? Yeah, they're really struggling right now. But really, that this is even a story, they're only four games below 500. That this is even a story 
is really a testament to their greatness over the years. If this continues and they end up with a losing season, it'll be their first in more than three decades. Now, they still have some good players. Garrett Cole's having a great season. Aaron Judge has missed some time, but he's had a great season. They just haven't got much help for those two. I think what'll be very interesting is what happens in the off season. Do they keep manager Aaron Boone and GM Brian Cashman? I think they should. I think they will. Both guys have a long history of success, but this is hard for the fans to watch for sure. Yeah, for sure. Now shifting gears to tennis, Novak Djokovic beat Carlos Alcaraz in a long and somewhat epic match. Do you think we'll see a rematch at the U.S. Open? Yes, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks that, but these two have really been head and shoulders the best two players on tour this year. Uh, and they've got a nice rivalry going, you know, this was, Sunday was the third time they've played this year, and it was a second that was for a title. It was a three-set match that lasted nearly four hours. I think really what Djokovic is doing is pretty exceptional. A 36-year-old, he's keeping up with a 20-year-old. Uh, it's been pretty amazing. They've got a nice rivalry budding, especially with, with Federer out, with Nadal injury, injured, it's nice to see this rivalry going, even if we know because of their age gap. It, Probably won't last that long. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Great to have you on. Thank you, Steph.